Welcome to Justice Visions, the podcast about everything new in the domain of transitional justice. Justice Visions is hosted at the Human Rights Center of Ghent University. For more information, visit justicevisions.org. Welcome to Justice Visions, and this is our first episode of a short series on historical truth, in which we'll be looking at formal and informal truth initiatives that have been set up in European countries to deal with settler and overseas colonial legacies. And today we'll be focusing on a number of initiatives that were taken in the Nordic countries, so in the context of settler colonialism, and we'll turn to those in a moment. But first I want to introduce my co-host for this episode and also an expert herself, and that is Sira Payaspero. Welcome. Good morning, Dina. Thank you. And Sira, you're a researcher at Justice Visions, and I'm introducing you again as a co-host, but um, you're also an interviewee, of course, in the sense that I have so many questions for you as well today. And maybe before we start, um, the first question is if you could say a couple of words about where this whole idea for a miniseries came from, why we decided to focus a number of episodes on truth initiatives within settler and overseas colonial context and what the link is with transitional justice. Yeah, this miniseries on historical truth and the legacies of colonialism came about as a sort of a response to the many initiatives that are currently taking place in different contexts. These initiatives are set up not only to address the legacies of the colonial past, but also the enduring harms in the present, which often take form of social injustices or structural inequalities. And demands to address historical injustices linked to colonialism, of course, are not new. Why are we talking about these um, initiatives now? They are not new, no. However, since 2020, coinciding with the latest protests of the Black Lives Matter movement, they have taken a renewed spotlight in the public and the political debate. In this miniseries, what we want to pick up upon is some of these debates to explore how different actors are engaging in different formal and informal truth-seeking initiatives and what does this mean for the domain of transitional justice. And could you say a bit more about, indeed, um how that relates to the domain of transitional justice? I believe this relation is somehow still in the making. As a response to these demands to address the legacies of colonialism, the transitional justice paradigm is increasingly being used to think about historical injustices. Historical truth-seeking initiatives within this post-colonial context, both formal and informal processes, they are increasingly using the logic and rhetoric of transitional justice. A clear example of this can be found in the latest wave of state-sanctioned historical commissions. We have talked about these commissions more broadly in the previous episode, so we will add the link to the show notes for our listeners. But what we're witnessing with these post-colonial historical commissions is a systematic reference to the core objective of transitional justice in their mandate. Could you say a bit more, in your opinion, about what that means for the field of transitional justice? Which implications this has for TJ as a field of scholarship and of practice? To me, the most obvious one is that this framing is broadening the field to consolidated democracies as a paradigmatic context, which means that the normative objectives and goals of transitional justice are transferred to a different landscape. When processes are framed as instances of TJ, of transitional justice, do we also observe a sort of um, embracing 
of or at least engagement with, let's say, the more kind of traditional goals of transitional justice. The truth dimension may be the most obvious one, of course, but then there's also accountability, reparations, non-recurrence. And I'm really interested, and maybe that's one of my last questions um, to you for, for now, Sira, is if we... Um, look at the initiatives now, how to understand the notion of accountability, because in a way, that notion is really foundational to the domain of transitional justice, but it also hovers around these truth initiatives, right? The the, the question of, of accountability, these truth initiatives addressing settler and overseas colonial legacies. So how, in your perception, can these historical commissions contribute to accountability? This is a key question, and I don't think only for the work of these historical commissions, but also for the field of transitional justice more broadly. What does it mean to achieve historical accountability for colonial crimes, right? Is it accountability even the right term to use in this context? Would it be more appropriate to talk about historical responsibility, for example, or even historical obligations of the post-colonial state or the settler states to redress these historical injustices? I think... The work of these commissions is kind of reviving these debates about what it is that they can achieve in terms of accountability and what it is that we understand as accountability within the field of transitional justice when this is used as a framework to address historical injustices of the colonial past. I agree, and I think we might have to accept that we're not going to be finding any definitive answers to that question in this episode. But on that note, I actually want to... Um, turn to the Scandinavian context, which we'll be talking about today, because in the Scandinavian context, there has actually been an evolution where we've seen the establishment of a set of commissions to inquire into the impact that assimilation policies of the Scandinavian welfare state has had on indigenous peoples in those countries, right? Yes, Finland, Norway and Sweden, all these three countries have established such commissions to examine the impact of these policies on different indigenous groups. That is the focus of today's episode, so this is the right time for me to also introduce our guest for this episode, Dr. Malin Arvidsson. She is a senior lecturer at Linköping University in Sweden, and she is currently working on a research project which is titled Truth and Reconciliation in the Nordic Countries at the Danish Institute for International Studies. But most importantly, I think, for this episode is that she has also been a member of the Swedish Truth and Reconciliation Commission for Turnadalians, Kvens and Lantalaiset, which was set up in 2020. Welcome, Malin. Thank you. And so, Malin, the first question that I wanted to ask you is about these, I think we can say recently established commissions on settler colonialism in the Scandinavian countries, because they've been a long way in the making. And what explains that we've seen this boom around 2020? Why now? What, um, in a way, were the, the key soci social and political aspects in the Scandinavian context that explain that all of a sudden we saw the establishment of all these commissions? I guess there's several different answers to that question. Uh, I mean, one main inspiration has, of course, been the Canadian Truth and Reconciliation Commission. That's been a reference for several of the commissions in Sweden and uh, other Nordic countries. Um, another more maybe domestic uh, explanation is that there's been previously similar commissions uh, that has not been termed truth and reconciliation commissions, but that has been dealing with, for example, um, 
abuse of children in out-of-home care or uh, treatment of different minority groups, uh, but not in this framework of truth and reconciliation commissions. But that's been aimed at redressing historical injustices within the Nordic welfare states. And I think that's super interesting, that framing that you're referring to, right? Because that is something that we see in these more recent commissions, that they are, in a way, at least some of them, pretty explicitly framed as truth and reconciliation commissions. And so in a way, really adopting that logic and that rhetoric of transitional justice and of human rights, no? So could you talk a bit about that as well? What you see as the reason why all of a sudden these commissions are now framed as truth commissions and not, for example, as historical commissions or along the lines that you just explained? I think we need to see this in a longer time frame. I mean, I've been looking, uh, for example, previously at how the very term of Truth and Reconciliation Commission has been used in the Swedish parliament. And um, early on, there was some references to the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, to the commission in Guatemala. And so it's been used as a way of asking for investigations, as a rhetorical tool to make the state look into its past. And it's also been used for many years uh, within debates about minority uh, rights, etc. But it's only now that it's been actually used as a term officially uh, for an inquiry. But the language of Truth and Reconciliation Commission has been around for much longer. I think that that's really interesting, that point you're saying about a certain language or, or about the, the notion of DJ being used as a rhetorical device, right? And, and that actually triggers a follow-up question in terms of what you feel the implications are of this DJ framing, um, whether it's as a, a rhetorical device or otherwise, um, what the implications are in terms of how these commissions work, what they're expected to achieve, and maybe also about the implications in terms of the involvement of affected people. On a very practical level, there has been seminars with practitioners who have worked, for example, in the Canadian Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but also in other commissions like the one in Peru. So there's been some lessons about the practical work of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in the preparatory work for, for example, the recently set up SOMI Commission in Sweden. And more concretely, uh, we can see, of course, in all of the Nordic commissions that are ongoing right now, a huge emphasis on using interviews as a way of documenting these rights violations, which is, of course, um, in direct relation to the practices that have been developed in previous Truth and Reconciliation Commissions. That's interesting, that point that you raise about, in a way, lesson learning or, or sharing best practices across different I would say TJ contexts, whether they're typical TJ contexts in a way like Peru or kind of the more a paradigmatic TJ context like the Canadian Commission. That makes sense. But then I also wonder, has that lesson learning or even that label of TJ generally been perceived as beneficial thing, as a sensible thing to do, to move towards this framing of TJ? Is there a lot of support for this? I would say both at the political or at the public level. There has been a debate, for example, whether it's wise to use the very term reconciliation uh, commission or whether the naming should be a truth commission only, uh, with the argument being that we need truth before reconciliation. 
uh, we need to see the results of the commission before further uh, discussion on, on redress and reconciliation can be held. The very fact that it is, for example, uh, the name of the commission that I'm in, uh, which is the, the first in Sweden to be named Truth and Reconciliation Commission, is evidence that the term and this framework has been influential. And then, of course, there's still debate about whether it's the right decision or whether one should use a different notion or of redress. I would actually like to return to a point that you just mentioned about interviews that were taking place, at least in some of the commissions, because I think in a way, in that process of investigation that the various commissions are embarked upon, the collaboration between the commission and the indigenous peoples or communities is key. And I wondered if you could speak a bit more about how that participation has shaped up in practice, maybe whether you see any differences between the different commissions and whether that's been perceived as sufficient or as a good thing? So if we take the Swedish context, which I'm more familiar with, the commissions that are now ongoing is only one step in a much longer process. So they have both been set up as a response to demands from minority representatives. And minority organizations have been preparing these commissions by making their own pre-studies and both interviewing and uh, making surveys, etc., about the potential outcomes of a commission and also fears and challenges that could be foreseen with carrying out these commissions. So there's been a long anchoring process. But of course, as we can see in many different countries, there's also been controversy around whether this is a good idea at all, whether it makes more harm than good. Actually, also just the very fact that you're saying that these commissions came about in response to demands by the communities, I think is, is very interesting. And it makes me want to ask about the fact that the commissions, um, I think all of them are investigating in a broad sense crimes that happened under the assimilation policy and, and the consequences for indigenous peoples as a whole, rather than questions of individual responsibility and questions of individual compensation for victims, for example. So how is that perceived? Is that also a response to the demand by the communities themselves, or is there also a demand there for actual, say, individual victim compensation, for example? Mainly, it's been talk about different um, uh, kinds of collective redress, less talk about individual compensation, as far as I know. And as you mentioned, I mean, the commission I'm working, we're not even allowed to, to look into individual responsibility. Before we uh, started this bit of the conversation, Sira also raised some questions about accountability and what accountability means in these kinds of truth processes regarding settler colonialism and, and its legacies. How would you understand the notion of accountability in that specific context, given that we're really taking the whole debate about individual responsibility and accountability out of the equation? I would say that's an ongoing debate right now, something we need to relate to in our work and in the remit of our commission. The word that's used is uh, in Swedish ansvar, and that's not necessarily translated into accountability in English, it could also be translated as responsibility. So there's some, some conceptual work going on, I would say, right now. But what's interesting in this case is that 
We also need to think about, if you talk about historical injustices in this long time perspective, what are even the actors that we are looking at? Because, for example, the state and the Church of Sweden has an intertwined history. So there's some really difficult questions to handle there. And I want to ask you more about how the debate is shaping up. But maybe we can also just link to that in the show notes to some uh, interesting resources on on that point. um, Because it might be too much to go into that um, entire debate here. For now, I think what I I also still wanted to ask you is um, looking a bit more towards the future. Because, of course, these truth commissions and historical commissions in a way that are operating in the Scandinavian context, they won't be an end point. They're the, the kind of accumulation of a process that was ongoing already um, and a response to certain demands. But then I'm wondering, um, in your perception, what's next? What are the next steps that are envisioned? Of course, it remains to be seen what the recommendations will be of these commissions that are now ongoing and what actions will follow. Um, but I think we could already now see that um, the commissions... Um, because they're temporary bodies, uh, will not be able to follow up uh, on its own recommendations. That's up to the commissioning bodies, the government in the Swedish case and the parliament in the Norwegian case. But I mean, what will remain is an archive of interviews, researcher reports that have been commissioned by the commission that can serve as as a basis for further advocacy and claims making. And I think... On that note, we're, we're probably approaching the end of this episode. One of the last questions that we're always asking our interviewees is where they are looking for inspiration, right? And and which best practices, in a way, um, that you're observing in the field, best practices that are making you hopeful? Well, if I answer as a commissioner, I would say that um, we've been learning a lot from the Norwegian commission that started earlier in 2017 uh, when it comes to how they're carrying out interviews, um, analyzing interviews, etc. As a historian, I think I look to works that stress the long time perspective, because, I mean, it's quite limited what a commission can do within two or three years. But if we see in hindsight, previous processes uh, have led to follow-up commissions, policy changes, etc., etc., but in, maybe in a much longer time frame than, than just a couple of years. I would like to pick up on one of the latest points raised by Malin on the possibility of historical commissions to follow up on the implementation of their recommendations. We have seen in previous historical commissions investigating colonial crimes, for example, in the case of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People in Canada or the Indian Residential Schools Truth Commission in Canada as well, that there is some sort of a disconnect in between the recommendations proposed by the commissions and the foreseen reforms of the political and social landscape. Although the political life of the state might slow down the implementation of the recommendations, in most cases, the sanctioning state focuses on the implementation of those symbolic measures that are less disruptive of the systemic structures, threatening to transform the work of these historical commissions in tactical concessions. And that may actually generate questions about what the actual capacities of such commissions are. Absolutely. I think going forward, we must find effective ways to translate the work of these commissions into substantial change to get the sanctioning states to fully commit to the process of redressing historical injustices and to tackle the enduring social injustices and systemic inequalities in the present. 
Nevertheless, I think we should not overlook the importance of the legacies of the investigative work of these historical commissions. As Malin was saying, they create past archives that are key for future claims and advocacy work. I think this is a key aspect because then we can see these commissions as platforms for ongoing processes of critical reflection about the past. True, and I really want to, to thank you, Sira, for sharing those, those last thoughts and reflections on what Malin had already shared with us. And Malin, thank you so much for sharing your experience as a commissioner with us. Thank you for inviting me. And we will be back next month with another episode in this mini-series on historical truth in which we will focus on Portugal. This was Justice Visions. To re-listen to this episode or to browse our archive, visit our website justicevisions.org or subscribe now via Spotify or Apple Music. Justice Visions is made possible through generous funding of the European Research Council.